According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, we are going to wrap up, I believe, yeah, we're going to wrap up today the uh, episode 13, the last of the uh, verses that pertain to the Mount Olivet Discourse. The Mount Olivet Discourse. Can you keep it straight in your own mind? What's the difference between the Mount Olivet Discourse and the Sermon on the Mount? What's the difference between the Mount Olivet Discourse and the Upper Room Discourse? Can you keep that straight? Do you know where the different discourses are in the Gospel of Matthew? Which one is Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Which one is Matthew 24 and 25? Which one is not even in the Gospel of Matthew? Yeah, where is the Upper Room Discourse found? That's in the Gospel of John, right? Chapters 13 through 17, right? Some people count it 13 through 16. Some people even include some of chapter 12. Depends on where they break that down. All right, well, good. Good, good, good. Matthew 25. We've got some sheep and goats to deal with today. We've already dealt with virgins and talents. Today we've got sheep and goats. Matthew 25, 31. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. We don't deserve this, Father. Who are we? And yet, in your grace, you have redeemed us. You have placed us in your Son. You have provided all things pertaining to life and godliness. And we thank you for that grace provision, Father. We embrace it. We acknowledge your glory in providing it. And, Father, we want to, uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the uh, calling with which, with which we have been called. So, Father, please, at this time, set aside the distractions. Take every thought captive. Bless our time together, Father, in your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. There are three items in this episode. The parable of the ten virgins, which we studied under point one. The parable of the talents, which we studied under point two. And then the day of judgment. Can you guess what point that is? <laughs> point three. We have a very simple outline as uh, as it relates to that. There's a couple of things. I think we, we have wrapped up everything that I intend to do with uh, the parable of the talents under point two. Um, there were subpoints A, B, C, and D. Um, the only thing I would maybe expand upon that would be, as we move to the day of judgment, <coughs> would be, Really, just the, the difficulty that uh, believers have, church-age believers have, in these parables, uh, the parable of the talents, or the one similar to this over in the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the manas, um, these parables where there are servants that are serving, uh, they then receive their eternal reward. In their eternal reward, uh, some uh, have what they have taken away from them and given to other believers, right? Right? 
And, uh, and that leaves some believers uncomfortable, saying, well, wait a minute. Uh, and then the whole thing about take this servant out and throw him into the outer darkness where there is the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Uh, the depart from me, I never knew you. And how could they be a servant if I never knew you? And, and different things there. And the real puzzle comes in when um, church age believers are uh, looking at a passage given to Israel and thinking in, in terms of a church age perspective. We've got we to separate from the church age. You've got to pretend you don't know the New Testament. All right? Pretend you're not a believer in the royal family of God in the church age. Put yourself back into an Israel standpoint. I think you do a lot better with it. And uh, I, I could tell. I, I don't often... Most of the time I'm preaching to the thermostat or to the clock. Uh, I don't often look at facial reactions or expressions from people in, in the course of Bible class. But these are the kind of parables or these are the kind of um, lessons in the life of Christ where um, there's uh, confusion and where there's unease. And so I want to put people at ease, all right? And last week, or last time, two weeks ago, Last time, I could see a very visible sigh, you know, kind of a relief on the part of everybody in the room um, when, when I just kind of stopped and said, all right, now, uh, this first guy's a believer, this second guy's a believer, this third guy's not even a believer, right? Which is why he gets thrown out and th- gets thrown in hell. And as soon as I made it that simple and said, he's a believer, he's a believer, he's not a believer, then... Okay, we wanted to hear that, right? And people were happy and they were at peace and it made more sense. It still is not going to be quite that simple. And I'm, I'm at risk of following up to last time's uh, sigh of relief by returning back to more difficulty this morning. But I think it would do you a disservice if I, if I didn't. Um, because it's not quite that simple. There's more to it when it comes to Israel and their stewardship. Okay, so let me let me approach it from this perspective, and then we'll move on to, to the day of judgment. And that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at Israel in uh, with the talents, those uh, servants uh, that were assigned responsibilities and so forth, and some were faithful and, and some were not. <clears throat> when we get into the sheep and goat, we're we're turning to the Gentiles. And what was their standard of judgment? Basically, how they treated the Jews, and uh, they weren't—they didn't have other additional stewardship responsibilities because they're not stewards. Um, and so we'll, we'll address the Gentile judgment here today. Um, but the last thing I want to say about Israel and their stewardship, because it's so different than ours. Okay. Um, the uh, the high priest. Or any priest, okay? In order to be a priest, in order to uh, to fulfill that role, do you think they were all saved? You do. Interesting. Okay, and that's the problem, okay? Because in our stewardship, in the church. Every member of the church is saved by definition. You cannot be the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. You cannot be a part of the church, capital C church. You cannot be a steward in this dispensation without having eternal life, without being regenerate, without being born again. 
And uh, now obviously in the lowercase c, we got church members maybe that aren't saved and the Lord knows who are His and so forth. But to truly be a steward, in this dispensation, you must be saved. Because if you don't have eternal life, you're not in the church and you're an unbeliever. You're not a steward. The stewards are all saved. And that's what we're used to. And we assume that that's how it's always been. Okay? To be a priest, your dad had to be a priest. To be a Levite, your dad had to be a Levite. You were born into that tribe. You were born into that clan, that family, that responsibility. And by the time... I think we can demonstrate pretty clearly that most of the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders that Jesus was dealing with, they weren't saved. He tells Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And many of the Levites and the priests in Jesus' day, he calls them a brood of vipers. And John the Baptist called them a brood of vipers. They were priests, but they weren't saved. And now here's the, here's the, the concept. Because their stewardship is not like ours. Their responsibilities were not like ours. A Jewish person was expected to observe the Sabbath, was expected to follow the feast calendar, was expected to live in their land grant, was expected to pass on their inheritance, whether they were saved or not. Salvation is a separate issue from stewardship in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Okay. So, if you understand that, then it, it actually helps in the parable of the manas, in the parable of the, uh, the talents, for example, and how it is that this guy is a servant. He is provided a talent. He's not provided five talents. He's not provided ten talents, right? Isn't it one, five, ten? It's one, two, and five. Okay, he's... <clears throat> He's only provided a single talent. That's all he's provided. And, and the difference is they were provided these talents according to their ability. Okay. But he is given a talent. And even as an unbeliever, he has a talent in the sense that he is racially Jewish. He belongs to the stewardship of Israel. And so this is where he, you can be considered a servant, given a talent, expected to do something, namely expected to serve Yahweh, expected to operate within the covenant, expected to, to uh, function in the, in the tribe and clan and, and feasts and everything that was the national life of Israel. Now, clearly also getting saved is part of that. <laughs> See? Um, where, whereupon they can get their second talent and their third, fourth, and fifth talent and they're given more responsibility. <clears throat> so... In any event, I think that the thing that throws more people for a loop, they, they look at this servant given a talent, and they say, well, he's got to be saved or he wouldn't be given a talent. He wouldn't be serving Yahweh. And they get fixed in their mind. He's got to be saved. And then at the end of the story, he's thrown into hell. And then they say, oh, I don't like that. He's thrown into hell. He must not be a believer. Right? And... Now, hopefully, with this distinction, you can resolve or reconcile that apparent discrepancy. There's no discrepancy at all. He's not saved. He never was saved. But he is a servant, and he is given a talent as a part of his stewardship. The stewardship in Israel was not based upon salvation. 
not like it is today. Our priesthood today is based upon the power of an indestructible life. The priesthood our Savior holds in Melchizedek is not on the basis of earthly birth, but on the, ba on the basis of an indestructible life and the will of the Father and, and the issues there. So anyway, hopefully that will be a help to you to consider. And uh, I just really, I've been chewing on that all week, in the last two weeks, thinking, is there, a, is there a way to describe this or explain this or help, help uh, flush that out? And uh, maybe at some point I'll even put that in the printed notes so that it's on paper as well as as well as coming across verbally here this morning. All right. Well, then, let's look now at verses 31 and following, the judgment. So we've dealt with Israel, with uh, the slaves here, the good and faithful versus the wicked and lazy. And uh, now we're ready to move on to the final message here on the Olivet Discourse. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Notice. Uh, let me read through the whole thing and then, because I'm going to have too many stops. <laughs> I love this passage. All right. Then He will sit on His glorious throne. And this is where progressive dispensationalism is dead wrong. And Dallas Seminary is stupid. <laughs> because they went to progressive dispensationalism about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. They've embraced it. And they're equating the, um, the uh, session of Jesus Christ with the, the Davidic throne. That when he ascended to heaven and he was seated at the right hand of the Father, that that is the son of David seated on the Davidic throne. And they blend the uh, the Father's right hand with a Davidic throne, and they just throw it into a confusion. This verse says, He will not sit on His glorious throne until the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Then He will sit on His glorious throne. The throne of David is different. The earthly throne is different than the heavenly throne. And seated at the right hand of the Father is different than sitting on the throne of David. And if you keep that straight, then... Dallas Seminary should give you a degree and not uh, a diploma and not the men they're training these days. I, I'm sorry, but I, I'm really um, convicted that it's destructive. Progressive dispensationalism is neither. And uh, I believe that it's damaging to the, to the pastors and churches that are pursuing that. All right. And when that happens, all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them. Uh, and when we have nations here, that's the word for Gentiles. All the Gentiles will be gathered before him. And he will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king, this is the one seated on his glorious throne, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Gentiles do have kingdom that they're looking forward to. It is not the kingdom of Israel, but it is their estate. It is their reward. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison. And you came to me. There is a six-fold description of Gentile ministry. Um, 
hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick. Oh, prison, six. There they are, six of them. All right. Six is very interesting. It's the number that we're, if you ever study numerology related to the Gentiles, related to humanity, related to, of course, the number of humanity, uh, the number of Antichrist is the trinity of six in terms of 666 and uh, different things there. Then the righteous, underline that word, will answer him, Lord, when did we, and this gets very redundant, but it's designed this way so that it's um, instructive. When did we see you hungry, number one, and feed you? Or thirsty, number two, and give you something to drink. And when did we see you a stranger, number three, to invite you in? Or naked, number four, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, number five, or in prison, number six, and come to you? And so they repeat it very redundantly. And this, uh, this helps us. It's pedantic, and it's, it's that way on purpose so that it's reinforced. Uh, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. All right, now, stop right there. Again, damage gets done in this chapter when church-age believers take the church and inject it back into this pre-church message. Okay? And I want to be very clear on this. This is not church. One of the more important things we're going to study, and, they, and they, some people do this without even knowing they're doing it, and that's bad enough. Others will actually do it intentionally because they want to blend Israel and the church, part of their covenant theology or part of their replacement theology. Um, and they do so, I think, dangerously because they're, they're confusing the upper room discourse with the Olivet discourse. Okay, and I'm going to be I'm going to spell this out because John 13 through 17 is by and large church oriented. It precedes the church, but it's church oriented as Jesus Christ prophetically prepares his apostles from being Israel apostles to church apostles. Okay, and I'm going to show you in the text why we take it that way and why we we're not just uh, being arbitrary. We're not just flipping a coin. We're not being arbitrary. We're not saying, well, all of it is Israel. Upper room is church because we like it like that and it makes our system work. Okay? We're doing it for text-based reasons. We're doing it for legitimate hermeneutical reasons, not for anything arbitrary or artificial. Okay? But the opponents, those replacement theology people, people that are blending Israel and the church, a lot of progressive dispensationalists and so forth, they look to the John passages in the Upper Room Discourse that do have a, an application to the church. And they say, see, Jesus talks to the church. And so they, go, they take that philosophy back to Matthew 24 and 25 and they say, look, this has to be a rapture passage. Look, this has to be for the church. Look, this has to be. And, they, and they're just doing that and they're doing that incorrectly. And I want to make sure that you and I, that we're all equipped to have sound reasons for why we uh, relate this the way we do. So now, this is the king on his throne. The king on his throne, on his Jewish throne, over his Jewish nation, with the Gentiles before him. How does this relate to the church again when we're neither Jew nor Gentile? Okay. When we're called out of all the, the nations, when we are a heavenly people. All right. 
Where's our holy city? Where's our throne? You know, we understand that this is not a church context. This is an Israel context. And so in this, these brothers of mine, who are these brothers of mine then? It's Jews. That's right. It's Jews. It is his, these brothers of mine, Israel. Jesus was born of the flesh uh, of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah, of the family of David. And so the standard for judgment for the Gentiles is how they treated the Jews. How it is they treated the Jews in these six categories. Food, clothing, uh, shelter, uh, food, drink, clothing, shelter, medical, and judicial. Right, prison. Right, those six realms. He will also say to those on his left... Okay, you got sheep on the one hand, goats on the other. Depart from me, accursed ones. Now underline that as well. Uh, if you underlined the righteous in verse 37, the, the, the contrast here, the corollary, is accursed ones. And these are mutually exclusive camps. This is, this is either or, black and white. Okay? <laughs> you cannot be an accursed one if you are a righteous one. Likewise, you cannot be a righteous one if you are an accursed one. And this is the, de the determinant. The determinant factor for this. What determines whether a particular Gentile is a sheep or a goat? What determines whether this person is thrown into hell or not? Or is allowed to enter into the kingdom prepared for the Gentile nations from the foundation of the world? It's not their good deeds. It's not what they've earned and deserved. It's whether or not they are righteous or whether or not they are accursed. So if you pay attention to the vocative of address, how he calls them, he says to the, those on his right, come you who are blessed. There's a term. Blessed of my Father. And that are called the righteous in verse 37. And then he says to those on his left, accursed ones, accursed ones. There's our contrast. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It's remarkable <clears throat> that uh, hell or the lake of fire, there's really no distinction in this context, um, the eternal fire, because hell gets thrown into the lake of fire, so it, it's still the eternal fire, um, was not designed for humanity. You think about that? It was designed for fallen angelity. And then humanity, likewise, is sentenced to the, the same venue, the same judgment location, hell, um, is also designed for fallen humanity, but initially it was not designed for fallen humanity. It was designed for fallen angelity. And I think this is a, a huge clue too. If anyone tries to, and I think they're weak, but there are some people that try to place the fall of angels later than we do, uh, even after the creation of man. Uh, they place the fall of angels, some, and they, they, they do some goofy things with it. In my mind, the serpent is a fallen creature before he even tempts Eve in, uh, in Genesis 3. 
but some people try to say no, and that's kind of when he fell too, and that's kind of when... And then they're just all kinds of confused. They don't want to place the angelic fall prior to the creation of man. They don't want to place the creation of angels prior to the... You know, they want to place the creation of angels in the six days of Genesis. And, uh, and they're pretty livid about that uh, in defending that position. And it just... There's no need for it, but they think there is. And uh, anyway, this is a good place to take him to say, well, wait a minute. You realize that not even hell was designed for humans. Hell, hell was designed for angels who had fallen before humans even came about. So depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For, and we go back through the redundancy again, I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. So there's food, drink, hospitality. Uh, naked. You did not clothe me. There's clothing. Sick in, and in prison. And you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we? Yada, 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 yada. Okay? <laughs> when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? I did not take care of you. He will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so there it is. All right. Three subpoints, and then a couple of sub subpoints, and this could be an early day. <laughs> All right. Subpoint A. The setting for this judgment is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The setting for this judgment is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. To me, it's pretty clear. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. That's the setting. And that has not happened yet. Not in any literal way. And any person who says it has happened has to allegorize uh, for hours on end in order to convince you that it's happened. Um, but it has not. Not in any direct, literal way. This is in agreement with 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7-10, through 10, Jude 14, Zechariah 14, 5. The second advent is one of the most prophesied events in all the Bible. In fact, it's I forget the exact numbers, but when you total all of the first Advent prophecies, that's only about half of what we have still to come in second Advent prophecies. There's much more uh, related to the second Advent of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul also addresses this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-10. through 10. Let's look at that. Jude 14, and then of course there's all kinds of Old Testament foundation for this, including Zechariah 14. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, let's take a look. Hmm. The... Um, conflict that grows and they faced conflict in their century. Verse 4 says, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. 
And so uh, it's an item to boast in. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And um, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. When you're going through discipline, when you are not discipline, undeserved suffering, when you're going through angelic conflict, when you as a church or individually are encountering persecutions and afflictions, rejoice. It's a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. <laughs> All right. So that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. All right. Now, this is a church passage. We do have a, uh, there is kingdom of God application that is directed towards the church. You don't just automatically say, well, that's Israel because it's kingdom of God. We have a kingdom of God orientation as the bride, as the wife of the king. Not as citizens, but as queen, as bride, as, as uh, so forth. Now, after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who, are, who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Now, there is payback. There is recompense. Okay, if you'd rather recompense, it's uh, maybe a nicer translation than payback. But that's what it is. Recompense. But it doesn't happen now. This is why we... We let go of judgment. This is why we let go of vengeance. This is why we let go of our anger. We let go of anything. Because vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. And that payback will come when? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. <laughs> Alright? You got the context for that? Now when you want payback today for what that dirty dog did to you yesterday, slow down now, chief. Has Jesus been revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire? Recompense comes at second advent. Assuming that this uh, villain you're, you're so hot and bothered about, assuming he actually survives the seven years of the tribulation, <laughs> which is not likely. Once you see the population devastation that takes place through the trumpets and bowls and seals. Or seals and trumpets and bowls, oh my. Okay. Um, the uh, recompense is coming. And when you're wishing that on somebody, you have a different attitude than God has. Because God desires that none should perish. And wouldn't it not be a better payback instead of you know lightning striking your nemesis? Wouldn't it be great if they got saved? Wouldn't that be the, the, just the greatest thing in the world? Where they got saved. You get these stories missionary stories of you know these tribe tribal folks they get saved they they end up um you know they they had been cannibals they had eaten the the previous missionary or the spouse you know um think about elizabeth elliot some of these other missionary stories and the missionaries go back and they lead to christ the very unbelievers that ate their husband or you know butchered their their uh the, the missionaries that went before them isn't that a better payback? <laughs> you know? Because when you can release that, what can you not forgive? And, and the point is, you can forgive everything because they're saved the same way you're saved. As God in Christ has forgiven you. So, anyway. Um, we endure. And, and the righteous judgment comes when we... Surrender all these things to the hand of God's judgment. 
when you just release it. Forgiveness comes when you just hand it off to the divine court of heaven. To the divine court of heaven. You say, Father, I'm not going to allow this to, to throw my inner happiness into turmoil. Okay? And this is, this is true forgiveness. Go back and listen to those forgiveness classes that we had in the conference week of our building dedication. Pastor Bruce Bumgartner taught an awesome message on forgiveness. I've listened to it probably 20 times in the last year since... Uh, that's, not an, that's not an exaggeration. I've even assigned it to people. Say, so you listen to this once a day for the next two weeks. Listen to it 14 times in the next 14 days. And then come back and talk to me and we'll, we'll discuss forgiveness. Okay? It's a powerful class. Now, when... Um, the Lord Him, Jesus, will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Remember, unbelievers are in disobedience because God desires for all to repent, for all to receive eternal life. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Is that enough recompense for you? Enough payback? God would have been more pleased if they'd have gotten saved. When He comes, notice now, to be glorified in His saints or by His saints or with His saints on that day. So He's coming back in, uh, with angels in wrath and power and great glory and, and judgment, but also in glory. And we share that glory. We come back with Him glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For, the, for our testimony to you was believed. So many things that are going to be happening on that day. Judgment upon the unbelievers. Glory among His saints, among His bride. And then marveled at among all who believe. And I think that there's, we have a, actually a dispensational spectrum right here. Because we've already had our resurrection at the rapture. We're already glorified as we return with Him. We sit on the thrones with Him as He sits on His throne. And then we see the Gentiles resurrected. We see the, the Israel resurrected. Uh, the Old Testament saints are resurrected. But then marveled at among all who believe, the tribulational believers are going to enter into um, their sheep and goat judgment and enter into their millennial kingdom too. So uh, all of this, all of the dispensational um, factions come into play here. And this is what the Lord is dealing with when He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. There is uh, the, the, the place for Israel, the place for the Gentiles, the place for every Gentile nation. And then the heavenly place where uh, he, Jesus is preparing for us. Alright. So. Millennial Kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, over to Jude. Now, Jude is recording this, but he's actually citing a class that Enoch taught back during the time of the Gentiles, before there were any Jews. This was a prophetic message to Gentiles and their stewardship in the seventh generation from Adam. And I love this. Never mind the fact that some of this uh, actually comes out of some apocryphal material. The apocrypha is not Bible, but Jude is Bible, and, and uh, the Holy Spirit cites this. So here it is. It was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam. I love that. 
Okay? Because I'm the seventh generation from Adam myself, <laughs> which I find very cool. The, uh, the Bolander that emigrated from Germany in 1751 was Adam Bolander. And uh, Johann Adam Bolander Sr. And um, on the ship Good Intent in 1751, sailed from Amsterdam to Philadelphia. And uh, anyway, and I am the seventh generation from Adam. How's that for coolness? Okay. Um, nothing to do with this verse, though. It was about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, myriads of his holy ones, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So uh, this is a long-standing prophecy, not unique to Paul and 2 Thessalonians or Jesus and Matthew 25, but this goes all the way back to Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam. Enoch, the one who did not die. Enoch, the one who was caught up. Uh, Moses, uh, Noah's uh, great-grandfather was caught up Noah was generation 10. Enoch was generation 7. All right. And then finally, let's look at one of the Old Testament foundations for this. Uh, Zechariah 14.5. And there were many more. So many of the prophets spoke of the coming king. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So we go from the second to last New Testament book to the second to last Old Testament book. Zechariah 14.5. And this is uh, almost the end of the Jewish people, almost the end of Jerusalem. But God provides the way of escape. The Lord goes forth in, uh, to fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. And that day His feet will stand under the Mount of Olives. Important that you identify that. This is one of the more important verses that contrasts Second Advent with rapture. In the rapture, He doesn't land on the earth. We meet Him in the air. Here His feet stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. <laughs> wow, how'd that valley get there? That valley wasn't there yesterday. Here's our way of escape. All right. The Gentiles thought they had Israel surrounded. There's no way, there's no place for them to escape. Well, here's a new valley. Guess what? This is how they're getting out. <laughs> um, you will flee by the valley of my mountains. See, and keep this in mind. And, you know, and you, well, we have little faith and we're praying and we, we're in a test and we don't see where the answer is. Well, guess what, folks? The answer may not exist yet. Just wait until he causes the answer to exist and then you go, oh, didn't know that was going to happen. No, you didn't, but he did before the foundation of the world. You will flee. By the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountain will reach to Ezel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. So there it is again. The coming with 
the holy ones. The resurrection of, I believe the holy ones applies to both elect angels as well as resurrected, glorified humanity. Just simply given the single term here, holy ones. That day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. This is part of the millennial geography and topography, not uh, the new earth. Okay. So the setting for this judgment is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Has not happened yet. This public judgment centers on the Gentiles. Point B. This public judgment centers on the Gentiles in contrast to the private wilderness judgment of Israel. The private wilderness judgment of Israel. That's recorded in Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 38. Some people stretch it all the way down to the context, down to verse 44. The wilderness judgment of Israel. I believe because, uh, and I don't know that anyone disputes this, uh, but I believe that Israel's judgment comes first and then the Gentile judgment. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. The priority is always to begin the judgment with the one that's most accountable, the one that's closest, that uh, it would be natural for Israel to have their judgment first and then they travel with the Lord up to Jerusalem to stand witness as the Gentiles are judged in Matthew 25. So I place Ezekiel 20 prior to Matthew 25. Because, as I said again, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. There's a pattern and a principle with that. And yet, you'll notice the similarities. This is uh, the judgment whereby living Jews are purged, unbelievers and believers. Because only believers are going to enter into the millennium. Ezekiel chapter 20. 33 through 38, or even 33 through 44. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. It's a mighty hand, outstretched arm, wrath poured out. It's going to take the tribulation of Israel to prepare for the kingdom. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you were scattered with a mighty hand and with outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. After he rescues them from Israel, from the Gentiles, and after he gathers them from the four corners of the earth, every Jewish person on the planet is going to be angelically transported to Israel, but not to civilized Israel, not to Jerusalem, not yet. First, they're gathered into the wilderness. And I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So there's a pattern there. Brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, enters into judgment with them. Likewise, gathers them from the four corners of the earth, enters into judgment with them. Verse 37, I will make you pass under the rod, that rod of iron that he rules the nations with throughout the millennial kingdom. He already has it in hand here. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Now, when he died on the cross, he shed the blood, which is the blood of the covenant. Right? 
but the blood of the covenant has not yet been applied to the nation of Israel. Understand that. Israel as a nation, as a nation, has not been brought under the new covenant yet. The blood's been shared, a shed, but it's not yet been applied. Remember all of the, the doctrine of, of the animal ritual. The, you know, the blood was shed at the bronze altar out front, but then it had, the blood had to be carried into the holy place. It had to be sprinkled before the veil. It had to be brought within the veil into the Holy of Holies. It had to be smeared onto the, onto the, um, uh, the, the, the um, Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, okay? Beneath the, the wings of the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, okay? The mercy seat. And so, there's a big difference between the blood shed and the blood applied. And when people ignore that, I think they, they get confused in a whole lot of eschatology. Because the blood was shed on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. But when has the blood been applied to Israel as a nation? Not yet. Not until we see here. All right? All Israel will be saved, but that hadn't happened yet. That happens here. The blood has to be applied as a nation. And we see the process of it here. I will make you pass under the rod. Remember when Jacob used rods, different colored rods, to raise his sheep and when he was tending Laban's sheep and different things? There's a lot of shepherding metaphor here. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn. In other words, they're part of the global regathering because he said, I will regather all Israel, but not all Israel is Israel. Okay? I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Okay? And so every racially Jewish person gets regathered from the four corners of the earth to get brought into this wilderness. And the unbelievers, called rebels, transgressors, these unbelievers, are executed right here. This is like the, the, the goats for the Gentiles. Okay, Sheep and goats, believers, unbelievers. Only believers are going to enter the millennial kingdom. Every unbeliever who survives the tribulation is not going to enter the millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ will execute them right there on the spot. And only believers will then enter into, for the Gentiles, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For the Jews, the joy of your master. The joy of, um, of, of their Jewish kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God on earth. Now, others go on and, and include 39 through 44 on this. I'm going to let that go because of our, our time here today. But understand this. Because they're so parallel. This is Israel's judgment. Separated believers versus unbelievers. Unbelievers are called rebels. They're purged. Okay. Purge. And this may not be pleasant. There, there could be. You may encounter maybe yourself or you're thinking this, this is kind of harsh. You know. And we are 21st century kind of um, modern 
civilized Western American type. The idea of a um, mass execution is, is, is harsh. The idea that, uh, that you would gather a, a conquered populace. Okay? This is, uh, this is, this is not allowed to, this is wrong today. This is, this is war crimes today. This is, this is genocide. This is, uh, this is, the, the world has defined this as evil. But this is what Jesus will do when he conquers this world. Unbelievers, those that have rejected his offer of eternal life are not going to enter into his earthly kingdom. And so, when you're studying sheep and goats in Matthew 25, you're, this is what you're studying. When he says depart into the fire, what's he doing? He's ending their physical life on this earth. All right. It says that he slays them with a the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. Okay. And likewise with Israel, when he purges the realm. What do you think that verb purge? That's what it is. All right. So, in any event, if uh, if you encounter folks that maybe uh, uh, don't like this passage or hate this passage or reject this passage, uh, the truth is the truth, and we need to understand it, and uh, we need to teach it accurately as the Scripture teaches it. Now, uh, so the public judgment centers on Gentiles in Matthew 25, in contrast to the private wilderness judgment of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 20. One's public, one's private. One is uh, his own people, and one is the Gentiles and how they relate to his own people. Okay, that's their standard. How do they relate to his people? Now, thirdly, what is the criteria that distinguishes sheep to the right, goats to the left? Point C. Some point C, sheep to the right, goats to the left. Sheep to the right, goats to the left. There's uh, the, the, the bad approach to teaching this passage is to focus on the behavior. Uh, because there are six descriptions of behavior in this. Feeding, watering, clothing. Um, yes, there are six descriptions of behavior or activity. But the determinant factor is not behavioral. The determinant factor is being. It's not what they do, it's what they are. In other words, they're divided Sheep are sheep. Goats are goats. It's what they are that determines whether they're on the right or on the left. It's not what they do. Because the sheep could have done, or the sheep did, the goats didn't. But the point being is not they're not where they are because of what they did or what they didn't. They're where they are because of what they are. And what they are is righteous or cursed. And we'll spell this out for you here as well. So let me flip back here to Matthew 25. And it's the same as uh, Israel's judgment. They're not judged for what they did. They're judged for what they are. Back to Matthew 25. Point one. The standard in judgment divides the blessed and righteous from the accursed. Some point one. The standard in judgment divides the blessed and righteous from the accursed. And when you compare verses 34 and 37 with verse 41, I don't see how it could be more obvious. 
Those whom the Father blesses are blessed. And apart from the Father's blessing, how could they be blessed? How could they be... Uh, if they are blessed of my Father, this is uh, a uh, declaration of their salvation status. Likewise, righteous. How could they have righteous? There is none righteous. No, not one. If they are righteous, how do they receive that righteousness? Well, faith. It is counted to them as righteousness. We understand. It's the only way by which God's righteousness is imputed. So when you have the blessed of my Father and the righteous being the description here of the sheep, and then you have accursed ones described there as the goats, again, you're talking about the positional truth contrast between believers and unbelievers. You and I, believers, are no longer accursed ones. Why? Because Jesus became our curse. Jesus became the accursed one when he hung on the tree. He took our curse. He took our punishment. He took our wrath. We are no longer accursed ones. We are blessed of the Father and righteous. It's a description of the redeemed, those who are saved. Secondly now, Gentile behavior does not merit their righteous standing. It wasn't because they fed the hungry that they were blessed of the Father and, and, uh, and declared righteous. They fed the hungry because they were blessed of the Father and, and were declared righteous. Remember what's going on in the tribulation? <laughs> You remember what Antichrist is doing? You remember what the, the, the powers of this age are doing? Why are these people naked? Why are they hungry? Why are, yeah, they're not taking the mark. They're not, they're not buying and selling. They're not eating. Um, understand this. And, and the Gentiles are in a pretty rough condition themselves for not taking the mark. Okay? But the Jews are the ones that are on the verge of being exterminated. That's the stated goal. the extermination of of Israel. Gentile behavior does not merit their righteous standing. Gentile behavior reflects their righteous standing as an expression of grace. Romans 4, 5, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's by grace or saved through faith and not of yourselves. The gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work but believes it is credited as righteousness. We've been studying Romans 4 here recently on Sunday mornings. So the behavior is not a um, something they did to merit it. It is a reflection. Walking in a manner worthy. The only people in the world at Second Advent <laughs> that, were, that were blessing the Jewish people were the believing Gentiles. Those blessed of the Father. The righteous. They're the only people in the tribulational age that are providing. Because they're risking their own lives in doing this. They are risking their own lives in doing this. All right. If you understand Matthew 25 in that basis, then uh, you understand that it's compatible with grace. It's compatible with Romans. It's compatible with Ephesians. It's compatible with Ezekiel. It's the same standard that Israel is judged on. All right, so five minutes left. Um, let me throw a couple questions out to you then. 
I think it's great for believers if they can distinguish between, um, as I said already, can you tell me the difference between the Sermon on the Mount and the Mount Olivet Discourse? Can you tell me the difference between the Mount Olivet Discourse and the Upper Room Discourse? Those are important, but how about this? Uh, can you tell me the difference between the Judgment Seat of Christ and the Great White Throne Judgment? Can you tell me the difference between the Judgment Seat of Christ and the Sheep and Goat Judgment? The difference between the Sheep and Goat Judgment and the Wilderness Judgment of Israel? See, so if you've got great white throne, judgment seat of Christ, sheep and goat judgment, wilderness judgment of Israel. You've got four of those. Okay. Are there any more? Am I missing any? Depends on how you count them. Okay, there are, there are other judgments. Um, but it depends on how you break them down and how you count them. Okay, now... I think, too, the, um, the, uh, the parables that we've gone through lately, parable of the talents, parable of the manas, um, people are, church-age believers get confused because they, they keep reading the church into that instead of seeing Israel in that. But here's another reason why they're confused is uh, because they're viewing that well-done, good and faithful servant. Um, here's your ten talents. Uh, they're viewing that as if that is the equivalent of the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, now let's be careful. Because, let's, let's, let's think about it now. Um, the, the guy who has ten, what's he going to do with those ten? He's going to continue on and keep investing those ten. And he's going to continue working. He's going to do more, bear more fruit, lay up more treasure, um, achieve more glory. And, and if we think that's the pattern for the judgment seat of Christ, we say, wait a minute, because ours is eternal. We have one life with one eternal reward. Okay? That's different than what Israel, what, what these folks are expecting. They've lived through the tribulation. They're going to receive their reward. They're going to move on into the millennium, and they're going to continue to serve. They're going to continue to work. They're going to continue to bear fruit. They're going to continue to invest treasure and talents. They're going to continue to serve. They become generation one. They're going to have babies in the millennium. All right? What I'm saying is, uh, wilderness judgment of Israel is either you're going to die and go to hell or you're going to enter into the millennium. It's a pass-fail. It's a live or die. Okay? And the, the losers, the dyers, the, the unbelievers, they're going to go into hell and they're not going to come out to stand their eternal judgment until great white throne at the end of the millennium. Okay? And, and the believers who get to enter into the millennium, whether it's the believing Jews in the wilderness or it's the sheep and, sheep and goat, they get to enter into the kingdom. Well done, you know, blessed of my Father, enter into the kingdom prepared for you. But they're not done. That's not their eternal reward. That's not their eternal reward because they're not dead yet. Right? You know, they're, they're going to they're enter into the millennium. They've they got, they, they got more work to do tomorrow. They've got more work to do the day after that. They're going to keep serving. See, you don't get your eternal reward until eternity. Until you're dead. Right? So, 
we often describe sheep and goat as a contrast to judgment seat of Christ. We've got to contrast in a whole lot of ways because it's not an eternal end of life judgment with an eternal reward for all eternity provided. It's a pass fail whether you're going to die and go to hell or whether you're going to live and enter into the millennium where you continue your, your Christian way of life, okay? Your Gentile way of life or your Jewish way of life. Does that make sense? All right. Question based on that. Yes, sheep and goat judgment is really just Gentiles being judged. And it's only a pass-fail judgment where unbelievers go to hell and believers enter into the millennium. And it's not an eternal judgment. They're not having their whole life evaluated for eternal reward. They're only being evaluated for believer versus unbeliever, either going to hell or entering into the millennium. No, no, no. Is at the second advent of Jesus Christ when this occurs? No. No. Nobody has died until. Okay. Yes. These are only living Gentiles that are brought as prisoners of war at the second advent victory triumphal throne at the end of the tribulation. Nobody here is dead until he kills them and sends the unbelievers to hell. Oh, I'm glad you asked that. I'm glad you asked that. Anybody else think these were all dead guys? Every sheep, every goat is alive. Right, during the tribulation. And those that, that don't die in the tribulation, those that survive, those that are alive at the end, at Armageddon, that are taken prisoner to stand before His throne. Yes, they're living. Nobody here is dead yet. They're all living. In fact, the ones that die in the tribulation, they stay dead. They, they're already dead. They stay dead. They're not going to come back until Great White Throne at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm glad you asked that. That's good. That's good. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they will not enter the land of Israel. Right. So where does this first part take place? Where, where is the wilderness? Where is the wilderness? Mm -hmm. Don't know the precise wilderness. Don't know exactly where. But it's not in the land. It's not in the land. They're gathered out of the Gentile kingdoms into some, into some wilderness somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. That's it. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. Help us to continue to understand. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.